You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I, I just, I love coming over to Santa Cruz. This is, this is where I want to live, but you know, <laughs> you need a special visa to, to immigrate here. <laughs> um, and thank you so much. It's so wonderful to have, uh, to be on the same, I guess stage isn't the right word, <laughs> sitting next to Rick. Um, he's always been so kind to my work. Uh, even when everyone else thought, Steingart who, you know, he was always supporting me. Um, I guess I'll start reading from my new book, which is Super Sad True Love Story. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's got a lovely cover. This is a kind of scratch and sniff dealy where you can, <laughs> ah, smells like teen spirit. And, uh, you know, it also has a nice kind of uh, twister design in case you're, you're interested in playing with it. Um, this is one of those novels which sadly requires a little bit of explanation. Uh, it's not science fiction with a capital S, but... Uh, it is set slightly in the future when a completely illiterate America is about to fall apart. So next Tuesday is uh, what we're looking at. Uh, the ruling party, there's only one party left, and it's called the Bipartisan Party, which is really handy. Uh, and it comes under the leadership of Defense Secretary Rubenstein, who is my first Jewish strongman. I'm very proud. Um, there's a device called the Apparat, which is worn as a pendant. And what it does, it's, it's, it's not an iPhone exactly, but it ranks, it's a very sophisticated device. And the moment you walk into a room, let's say I go to a bar, it automatically ranks me. Say I'm the 17th ugliest man in the room, but I have the eighth best credit rating. So it tells everyone exactly who they are. And there's two main characters, the Russian-American Lenny Abrama, who's the narrator of this section. He's approaching his 40s, which in this world is a big no-no. Getting to 40 is considered a very bad thing. Uh, and he works for a company called Post-Human Services, which is trying to find a cure for death. It's not going well. Uh, and he has a younger Korean-American girlfriend named Eunice Park, who uh, is uh, 15 years younger than him and uh, mostly just shops online for the entire day. And in this scene, they're about to go visit his parents. The next day, Eunice and I took the Long Island Railroad to Westbury, Long Island, to meet my parents, the Abramovs. The love I felt for Eunice on that train ride had a capital and provinces, parishes and a Vatican, an orange planet and many sullen moons. It was systemic and it was complete. Eunice was nervous almost to the point of quaking. Her outfit was conservative for the occasion, a sky blue blouse with a Peter Pan collar and white buttons, pleated wool skirt reaching down below the knees, a black ribbon tied around the neck. From certain angles, she looked like one of the Orthodox Jewish women who have overrun my co-op building. There she was sweating so handsomely on her orange pleather LIRR seat, her elder worship and elder fear brought out a strange immigrant pride in me. There was something else too. It was on the Long Island Railroad some 20 years ago that I had had my first crush on a Korean girl. I had been a freshman at a prestigious math and science high school in Tribeca. Most of the other kids were Asian, and although technically you had to live within New York City to go to the school, there were more than a few of us who faked our residency and commuted from various parcels of Long Island. For me, the long, the long ride to Westbury amidst dozens of fellow nerd students was a particularly difficult one because it was public knowledge at the Science High School that my weighted average was a dismal 86.894, 
while at least 91.553 had been recommended for entry into Cornell or the University of Pennsylvania, the weakest of the Ivy League schools. As immigrant children from high-performing nations, we knew our parents would slap us across the mouth for anything less than Cornell. Several of the Korean and Chinese boys who took the railroad with me, their spiky hair still haunts my most literal dreams, would dance around me singing, 86.894, 86.894. You won't even get into Oberlin with that, they said. <laughs> Have fun at Reed, Abramov. <laughs> yeah, see you at the University of Chicago. It's the teacher of teachers. But there was one girl, another Eunice, a Eunice Choi to be exact, a tall, quiet beauty who would pry the boys away from me while shouting, it's not Lenny's fault, he can't do well in school. Remember what Reverend Sung says, we're all different, we all have different abilities. Remember the fall of man, we're all fallen creatures. And then she'd sit down with me and unbidden help me with my impossible chemistry homework, moving the strange letters and numbers around my notebook until the equations were for some reason deemed balanced while I, utterly unbalanced by the magical girl next to me, her skin glowing beneath her summer gym shorts and orange Princeton jersey, tried to catch a brief smell of her hair or a brush of her hard elbow. It was the first time a woman had risen up to defend me, had given me the idea that I actually should be defended, that I wasn't a bad person, just not as skilled at life as some others. At Westbury Station, Eunice and I disembarked before an armored personnel carrier sitting by the squat station house, its 50 caliber Browning gun bouncing up and down. National guardsmen were surveying the diverse crowds, Salvadorans and Irish and Jews and whoever else had chosen to make this corner of central Long Island the rich, smelly tapestry it had now become. The troops appeared angrier and more sunburned than usual. Perhaps they had just been rotated out of Venezuela. Oh, we're fighting in Venezuela now in this book. It's not going well, either. Beside the armored personnel carrier, a sign read, it is forbidden to acknowledge the existence of this armored personnel carrier, the object. By reading the sign, you've denied existence of the object and implied consent. We took a cab to the corner of Washington Avenue and Meyer in the most important corner of my life. I could already see my parents' brownish, half-brick, half-stucco cape, the golden mailbox out in front, the faux 19th century lamp beside it, the cheap lawn chairs stacked on the island of cement that was supposed to be the front porch, and the gigantic flags of the United States and Israel billowing from two flagpoles. I felt a little embarrassed because I knew that Eunice's parents were much better off than mine. At the door, my mother appeared in her usual household outfit, white bra and panties. <laughs> she was about to throw her arm around my neck when she noticed Eunice let out some Russian garble of amazement and retreated inside the house, leaving me, per the usual, with the visuals of her thick breasts and white little round of belly. My father, shirtless, soon took her place, also gasped at Eunice, ran his hand against his naked muscular breast, said, whoa, then hugged me. There was hair against my new dress shirt, the gray carpet of hair that my father wore with an odd touch of class, as if he were a royal in some tropical country. He kissed me on both cheeks and I did the same, feeling the instructions, the code of Russian father-son relations. Father means I have to love him, have to listen to him, can't offend him, can't hurt him, can't bring him to task for past wrongs. He's an old man now, he's defenseless. <laughs> my mother reappeared in shorts and a wife beater. Synochik, little son, she shouted. Look who's come to us, Nashlubimitz, our favorite. She shook Eunice's hand and both of my parents swiftly evaluated her, affirmed that she was like her predecessors, not Jewish, but quietly approved of the fact that she was thin and attractive with a healthy black mane of hair. My mother unwrapped her own precious blonde locks from the green handkerchief that kept them safe from the American sun 
and smiled prettily at Eunice. She began talking in her brave post-retirement English about how glad she was to have a potential daughter-in-law, filling in the contours of her loneliness with rapid-fire questions about my mysterious life in faraway New York. Does Lenny keep clean house? Does he vacuum? Once I come to college dormitorium, oh, awful, such smell, dead ficus tree, old cheese on table, socks hanging from window. Eunice smiled and spoke in my favor. He's very good, Mrs. Abramov, she said. He's very clean. I looked at her with love. Somewhere beneath the bright suburban skies, I felt the presence of a 50 caliber Browning gun swiveling toward an incoming Long Island Railroad train. But here I stood, surrounded by the people who love me. I brought Tagamet from the discount pharmacy, I said to my father, taking five boxes out of the bag I brought. Thank you, Malinki, little one, my father said, taking hold of his beloved drug. My mother had already grabbed hold of the back of my head and was madly stroking my hair. So gray, she said, so old he gets, almost 40. Lunya, what is happening to you? Too much stress, also losing hair, oh my God. <laughs> you are named Eunice, my father said. Do you know where it comes from, such name? My parents, Eunice gamely began. No! It's from Greek, unike, meaning victorious. He laughed, happy to demonstrate that before he was forced to become a janitor in America, he had served as a quasi-intellectual and minor dandy on Moscow's Arbat Street. So I hope, he said, that in life you will be victorious also. Oh, who cares about Greek, Boris? My mother said, look at how she is beautiful. The fact that my parents admired Eunice's looks and capacity for victory uh, brightened me quite a bit. All these years and I still craved their approval, still longed for the carrot and stick of their 19th century child rearing, I instructed myself to lower the heat of my emotions, to think without the family blood bursting at the temples, but I was 12 years old as soon as I passed the mezuzah at the front door. My father began to lead me to the living room couch for our usual heart-to-heart. -heart. My mother rushed over to the couch with a garbage bag, which she draped over the place where I was about to sit <laughs> in my compromised Manhattan outerwear. She took Eunice to the kitchen chatting gaily to her potential daughter-in-law about how guys can be so dirty, you know, and how she had just built a new storage device for her many mops. On the couch, my father draped his arm around my shoulder and said, so tell me. I breathed in the same breath as he did, as if we were connected. I felt his age seep into mine as if he were the forward guard of my own mortality. I spoke in English with the tantalizing hints of Russian I had studied haphazardly at NYU, the foreign words like raisins shining out of a loaf. I spoke about work, about my assets, about the most recent fairly positive valuation of my 740 square foot Manhattan apartment, about all the monetary things that kept us fearful and connected. He held up the new apparat pendant I wore around my neck. How much, he said, turning the thing over, colorful data and rankings pouring over his hairy fingers. When I explained the device was given to me at work, he made a happy snort and said in English, ah, learn technology for free, it's good. <laughs> the floor beneath my feet was clean, immigrant clean, clean enough so that you understood that someone had done their best. My father had two old-fashioned television screens stapled to the walls above my mother's fanatically waxed mantelpiece. Oh, there's only two networks left, uh, Fox Liberty Prime and Fox Liberty Ultra. <laughs> one, was set to a Fox, one television was set to a Fox Liberty Prime stream, which was showing the growing tent city in Central Park, now spreading from the backyard of the Metropolitan Museum over Hill and Dale all the way down to the Sheep's Meadow. On the other screen, Fox Liberty Ultra was viciously broadcasting the arrival of the Chinese central banker at Andrews Air Force Base, our president and his pretty wife trying not to shiver in the bleak Maryland downpour. 
I felt my father's breath against my cheek for about 20 minutes as he talked about his complex political life and the news on the Fox, then excused myself, unwound from his human embrace, and went to the upstairs bedroom as my mother shouted to me from the kitchen, Lenny, don't take your shoes off in upstairs bathroom. Papa has gribok, athlete's foot. In the contaminated bathroom, I admired the strange blob of plastic with wooden spokes that kept my mother's serious mop collection in ready-to-access mode. Although my parents never had a good word to say about holy Petro-Russia, the hallways were hung with framed sepia-toned postcards of Red Square and the Kremlin, uh, the snow-dusted equestrian statue of Prince Yuri Dolgoruki, founder of Moscow, and the Gothic Stalin-era skyscraper of prestigious Moscow State University, which neither of my parents had attended, because to hear them tell it, Jews were not allowed in back then. As for me, I have never been to Russia. I have not had the chance to learn to love it and hate it like my parents. I have my own dying empire to contend with, and I do not wish for any other. My bedroom was nearly empty. All the traces of my habitation, the posters, and little bits of crap from my travels were gone. I reveled in the smallness, the coziness of an upstairs bedroom in a traditional American Cape Cod house, the half-floor that forces you to duck, to feel small and naive again. I cannot begin to tell you how much the purchase of this house, of each tiny bedroom, had meant to my family and to me. I still remember the signing at the real estate lawyer's office, the three of us mentally forgiving each other for a decade and a half worth of sins, the youthful beatings administered by my father, my mother's anxieties and manias, my own teenage sullenness, because the janitor and his wife had done something right at last, and it would all be okay now. There was no turning back from this, from this glorious fortune we had been granted in the middle of Long Island, from the carefully clipped bushes by the mailbox, our bushes, Abramov bushes, to the often-mentioned Californian possibility of an above-ground swimming pool in the tiny backyard. Down in the dining room with the shiny Romanian furniture the Abramovs had imported from their Moscow apartment, the table was laid out in the hospitable Russian manner with everything from four different kinds of salami to a plate of chewy tongue to every little fish that had ever inhabited the Baltic Sea, not to mention that sacred little dash of black caviar. My Eunice sat, Queen Esther-like in her orthodox getup, at the ceremonial end of the table upon a fluffed-up Passover pillow, frowning at the attention, unsure of how to deal with the strange currents of love and its opposite that circulated in the fish-smelling air. My father proposed a seasonal toast in English. To the creator, he said, who created America, land of free, and who gave us defense secretary Rubinstein, who kills Arab, and to love, which is blooming in such time between my son and Unike, who, big wink to Eunice, will be victorious like Sparta over Athens, and to the summer, which is most conducive season to love, although some may say spring. While he went on in his booming voice, a shot glass shaking in his troubled hand, my mother, bored out of her mind, leaned over to me and said, Кстати, у твоей Юнис очень красивые зубы, может быть, ты женишься? By the way, your Eunice has very pretty teeth. Maybe you will marry her. <laughs> I could see Eunice's mind absorbing the basics of my father's speech. Arabs, bad. Jews, good. Chinese central banker, possibly okay. America, always number one in his heart while she gauged the intent on my mother's face as she spoke to me in Russian. Eunice's mind moved so quickly through feelings and ideas, but the fear on her face reflected a life rushing by faster than she could make sense of it. The toast finally complete, we dove into the food without reservation, all of us from countries historically strangled by starvation, none of us strangers to salt and brine. Eunice, my mother said, perhaps you can answer for me th this question. Who is Lenny by profession? I never can figure it out. He went to NYU business school, so he is what? Businessman? Mom, I said, please, not now. I'm talking to Eunice, my mother said. You know, girls talk. 
I had never seen Eunice's face so serious, even as the tail end of a Baltic sardine disappeared between her glassy lips. <laughs> Lenny, Lenny does very important work, she told my mother. It's, I think it's like medicine. He helps people live forever. My father's fist slammed the dining table. Impossible, he cried. It breaks every law of physics and biology for one. For two, it's immoral against God. I would not want such thing. Pooh. Work is work, my mother said. If stupid rich American wants to live forever and Lenny makes money, why do you care? She waved her hand at my father. Stupid, she said. Yes, but how Lenny knows about medicine? My father lit up, brandishing a fork capped by a marinated mushroom. He never studied in high school. What is his weighted average? 86.894. <laughs> my mother waved him off again and turned to Eunice. So you met Lenny in Italy, she said? Lenny tells us you speak perfect Italian. Eunice blushed some more. No, she said, lowering her eyes and cupping her knees. I'm forgetting everything, the irregular verbs. Now Lenny spends one year in Italy, my father said. We come to visit him. He learned nothing. Blah, 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 blah. He moved his body to imitate my walking through the Roman streets while trying to talk to the natives. You're a liar, Boris, my mother said casually. He bought this beautiful tomato in market. He brought down price, three euro. But tomato is so simple, my father said. In Russian, pomidor. In Italian, pomodoro. Even I know such thing. If he maybe negotiate for us cucumber or squash. <laughs> Shut up already, Boris, my mother said. She readjusted her summer blouse and bored her eyes into mine. Lenny, she said, we see you appear on Apparat Stream, 101 people we need to feel sorry for. Why do you do it? Your colleague, he makes fun of you. He says you are fat and stupid and old. You don't eat good food, and you do not have profession, and your fuckability rankings are very low. <laughs> and he says, you've been demoted at the company you work. Papa and I are very sad about this. My father looked away in some shame while I curled and uncurled my toes beneath the table. I had told him so many times not to look at any apparat streams or data about me. I was a private person with my own little world. Why couldn't they find a better use for their retirement years and this painful scrutiny of their only child? Why did they stalk me with their tomatoes and high school averages and who are you by profession logic? And then I heard Eunice speak, her straightforward American English ringing against the smallness of our house. I told him not to appear in it too, she said. And he won't anymore. You won't, right, Lenny? You're so good and smart. Why do you need to do it? Exactly, my mother said. Exactly, Eunice. I did not say anything. I leaned back and watched the two women in my life look across a glossy Romanian table groaning beneath a plastic cover and 20 gallons of mayonnaise and canned fish. They were eyeing each other with a placid understanding. Sometimes mothers and girlfriends compete against one another, but that has never been my experience. It is quite easy for two smart women, no matter what the gap in their age and background, to come to a complete agreement about me. This child, they seem to be saying to each other, this child still needs to be brought up. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>